A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing Rishi Sunak's revelations in the magazine about the lockdown decisions that were made behind closed doors. Plus, from aid to trade, when will the West deal with Africa on its own terms? And finally, are handsy yoga teachers a real problem? First up, for the cover of this week's magazine, Fraser Nelson interviewed Rishi Sunak, who revealed to him his side of the lockdown story for the first time. Fraser joins me now, along with Katie Balls, our deputy political editor, and Kate Andrews, our economics editor. Fraser, your interview with Rishi Sunak this week has somewhat reignited the debate about lockdown. What do you think is the most incendiary thing that he told you? Well, throughout lockdown, we picked up things off the record the whole time about what was being said and what wasn't being said in Whitehall. It was a time of... It's quite difficult for journalists, actually, because it was at a time where if you criticised the government or the doxy, you were accused of letting people die, etc. And, of course, this has dilemmas for, for journalists. People want to be responsible in their reporting. But from quite an early stage, The Spectator found space for minority voices and um, pretty soon we found out that the minority voices were not just fringe science characters, that there were um, people in government who were saying something's going badly wrong here, that this lockdown, which was introduced for three weeks to start with, was being pushed through without cabinet members being told what was going on, and when they were asking what was going on, they weren't being told, so they smelled a rat. Now, there's a limit to you know what any political journalist can say. We speak to people the whole time. And those who did speak out against lockdown were taking a pretty big risk. Because at the time, Boris Johnson was letting it known that if you at any way criticised lockdown, it was a personal threat to him. Now, fairly soon, after the first few weeks, it emerged that Rishi Sunak was being the main voice challenging these things. And I tried to stand this up as a journalist, but I didn't really get anywhere. But you'd hear through the grapevine that in the meetings, it was Sunak who was saying, hang on, who's thinking about what's going to happen to the kids? Hang on, my wife is um, has got a, like a Stanford MBA, and of course she can take time off work to teach the kids. What about the working class single mother? Who's going to teach their kids? The strange thing is it was the Chancellor of the Exchequer who is making these education points or public health points. In other words, the only voice of opposition belonged to that of the finance man. Now, I am... Um, so I, for a long time, I tried to get him to talk about this, to go on the record, but I failed. But during the leadership contest, I uh, reached out to him and I said, look, I've picked up a lot of things, but maybe now you can go on the record because you've basically got nothing to lose, right? Um, he didn't want to criticise Boris Johnson before. I think that um, that ship has sailed. And, you know, he's is he going to be leader? Probably not. I figured this would be a good time to talk to him to see if he'd be candid about what's happened. Now, he was quite cagey in one regard. He didn't want the interview to be seen as him basically throwing a bomb at Boris. It didn't want to be seen to be a feud. 
But that wasn't my agenda. My agenda was to try to get him to talk about the many, many failings in government, how it came to pass, how you'd be closing down all the schools without any serious discussion about what would happen to the children, how it came to pass that you would send out this awful fear messaging telling people not to use the NHS, basically, because they might um, topple it over. So if you were going to do that, then what would happen to the cancer patient who felt a lump but was too scared? So you know, uh, so he was able to talk to me then when I did the interview about all the things which I had heard through the grapevine that he was saying, and he was able to go on the record with far more of it than I thought he would. Kate, you've written a lot about lockdown and the economic effects of lockdown. Were you surprised by Rishi's revelations? Well, I was surprised by a lot of the nuggets that are in the piece. It was fascinating to learn uh, through Fraser's interview with him that he had a treasury mole on the call uh, of many of these lockdown conversations that I suppose Sage didn't realize was there. So he had actually a better sense that there was more debate and discussion than was often conveyed to the public. It was very interesting to learn, for example, that education just wasn't being talked about it all around the table. It was like a no-go zone, uh, I'm sure, because people knew deep down that horrible things were happening behind the scenes and nobody wanted to confront that. So I suppose I learned a lot, but I wasn't surprised by the overall narrative that these trade-offs were not being discussed because throughout the almost two years of on and off lockdowns, the spectator was piece by piece discovering that these conversations weren't happening internally, uh, that there were not proper assessments of what was going to happen to the economy or to people's health down the line. And you can see that all in the figures now. I mean, the NHS is probably the most obvious example where the wait list is um, well over 6 million now. It is on track to go to over 9 million as internal graphs from the NHS uh, were shown. That was their estimation back uh, earlier in the year. In the week leading up to the 12th of August, there were over a 1,000 excess deaths um, than would normally be expected. Michael Simmons has a great piece on Coffee House about this, about just how high these deaths are and how people still don't want to talk about it. Like a mysterious and unexplained. I mean, we, we can't directly link them to lockdown, but it's a phenomenon. And, you know, th- th- you could have modelled this. That's the thing. You Any stage, if you said to the NHS, look... Because, by the way, we knew every single week of lockdown, you had daily figures showing who's showing up to A&E. Actually, it was a 50% drop in people showing up to A&E. Who's showing up to the GP? Actually, that's plummeted as well. So it wouldn't, you could easily, at any stage, have modelled how this gap in people presenting for everyday healthcare would translate into bigger diseases further down the line and what that was likely to mean to the NHS. Now, Rishi's point to me, when I said to him at one point, look, Rishi, the public opinion was very heavily behind lockdown. And we all remember this. We, we weren't massively fans of it in this office. But when you look at the opinion polls, you'd be shocked to find 70% of the public saying they wanted to lock down for, for longer. And I said to, to, to Sinek, look, surely in a democracy, nobody could have withstood that kind of public opinion. But he was saying that there's two things you forget. One, that government helped shape that public opinion with the fear messaging, telling people pretty much, if you go outside, then people will die. And that was literally one of the messaging. And then secondly, they weren't told, but lockdown's going to have side effects. They weren't told, look, we can lock down if you want, but this is what it's going to mean for mental health. This is what it's going to mean for cancer. This is what it's going to mean for people in care homes that are isolated and being unvisited. And we know the science tells us, but loneliness can be fatal for that sort of demographic. So his argument to me, Rishi Sunak says that had these factors being presented to the public in a grown-up adult way. Like, it's a very difficult decision, there's pros and cons, here are the drawbacks to lockdown, here are the potential advantages. He reckons that you would have probably had shorter lockdowns, 
fewer lockdowns, but most of all, you'd have been able to have an honest conversation with the public and you'd been able to better prepare for the calamity which is now ahead of us. Because from the moment we locked down, it was clear there was going to be a mo absolutely monumental amount of healthcare backlog to do. If you started preparing for that straight away, which you should have been doing, we wouldn't have such a big problem now. But we didn't prepare for it because even in, this is one of the things I was shocked to find out in Rishi's interview. Even inside, forget the cabinet, the quad, right? the top four people inside cabinet, you couldn't even have an honest discussion there about what was coming down the road because it was seen to be disloyal to say, even in that environment, that lockdown would have these bad effects. Katie, it's obviously a political decision of Rishi's to have spoken to Fraser, particularly as we enter the last week of the leadership contest. How do you think his decision will be seen by both Tory members and his own party? Well, I think what's striking from Fraser's conversation with Rishi Sunak is the fact that he is clearly very insistent he doesn't want to name names. So we still thanks to Fraser's work, get a few glimpses. There's there's not much in the sense of, you know, he doesn't talk really directly about how he feels about Boris Johnson and his role. I think you can... But no prizes for guessing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't think you need to say the name to be able to yeah, yeah. work <laughs> I mean, out that there is a sense that Downing Street were bouncing people into decisions and there was a structure that was problematic. And then I was quite struck when it's talking about the lockdown where... Uh, well, the plan to propose lockdown and there was a sense it might happen where Rishi Sunak flew back from America for this meeting and he ultimately said to Boris Johnson you need to put this to the cabinet he said everyone will be completely behind you you don't have to worry I'll be standing next to you as will every other member of the cabinet bar probably Michael and Saj and I think that does show you where We've obviously written countless columns through that period about the hawks and the doves and at the time people say you're wrong, you're wrong, there's no divide. Why do you keep saying there's a divide? And then, of course, it does turn out there was a divide. Um, and actually, we were all correct about the divide. When I did that interview, I walked away thinking all the things that we, you know, in this room suspected were happening were actually happening. And that was, to me, the, the biggest... It was... I, I can't say I felt happy. I felt sick, actually, that we somehow in this government had this collapse of democracy, a collapse of scrutiny, where something of all of these consequences could be pushed through without anybody saying, hang on, what are the implications? If you're planning a summer holiday, you do a better cost and benefit analysis than you would do was used to put through lockdown. But I think just going back to your point, Lara, what are the implications perhaps for the Tory leadership contest? I mean, I think there is a sense that a lot of people have already voted barring a spectacular polling error and there have been political surprises it seems pretty hard I think as Fraser has alluded to for Rishi Sunak to win this contest obviously he says con contrary to that I was struck a few weeks ago actually when uh, one of the spectators columnist Toby Young said that he was backing Liz Truss because she was the candidate who was the strongest on lockdowns and I found it quite strange not as a criticism to Toby in the slightest, but just in the sense of from covering that period, I think Liz Truss, partly because her role at the time was largely separate to the COVID uh, debates. Almost completely. Uh, and I don't think she would claim to have been a central figure in the slightest. She wasn't in the quad. She didn't have a role that meant she was engaged with it. And therefore, I did wonder, how have you got to a point where, from reporting on the t at the time, Rishi Sunak was, you know, the, the, t the chief hawk, to people saying they're backing Liz Truss because they think that she is stronger opposing lockdowns than Rishi Sunak. So I think this could play well to some who are looking at this, but perhaps it's all a little bit too late.
And Fraser, in your piece, Rishi explains why he didn't resign at the time. Do, I mean, do you think that was the right decision? And, and do you think that will sort of count against him that he's only saying all of this now, one week to go, leadership contest? I'd be surprised if he thinks the interview is going to move the dial on him becoming leader. If I was in his place, would I have resigned? I mean, that's the funny thing about politics. You end up in a position which you didn't expect to be chancellor. You see around you terrible things happening. So you've got two choices. Either you walk away in disgust or you do your best to try to make the terrible things less bad, to try to change it. Now, I think it's a bit juvenile to walk away, in po- to do anything in politics and walk away with citing differences. Politics is all about differences. No four people are going to agree the same thing. So, of course, if you're, if you're going to be a government minister, you have to go on television saying things you don't really believe. That's your job. You're there to represent the government. And I think he would have thought that it would be a dereliction of duty to walk away where he thought that as chancellor, and by the way, he, he could do good, and he did do good. He was able to, for example, stop us having a fourth lockdown. Had he not been chancellor, we probably would have been locked down last December because he, by that time, was able to get proper modelers in the treasury. He was able to get in contact with his um, Stanford University and J.P. Morgan. He was able to have an operation that was finally able to um, check SAGE and come up with a counter-narrative to SAGE. So the fact that he did stay there, despite all of what he saw, I don't think is hypocritical. I think he actually demonstrated why if you stick in, you, if you get the chance to change things, if you get the chance to, to lay your fingers in the clay of power, as a politician you should do that, even if it's difficult. And it's in a way harder to stay in fight than it is to walk away. And Kate, just finally, what do you think are the kind of long-term lessons from all this? I mean, was it a failure of our political governance or the media? Or I mean, who, who's, who's sort of ultimately to blame here? I think there's a lot of blame to go around. An important point that Rishi Sunak makes to Fraser is that uh, one of the reasons he doesn't want to point fingers is because certainly in the beginning, everybody was flying blind. Nobody knew what COVID really was, how badly it would impact us, what the death rate would be. And so I think there is a lot of sympathy for the decisions that were wrong at the very start. And the fact that, you know, lockdown, as as Rishi says, was essentially a, a necessity at the start. What I find so horrifying and where I point a lot of the blame is to those at the top, those making the decisions, uh, who once we had far more information about this virus, who was really vulnerable to it, how it was impacting us, and when they got to the point where they were actively not talking about the other consequences and the knock-on effects, they decided to double down with that narrative and just keep us in a perpetual state of lockdown. And I, I think, you know, Rishi going on the record, I have no doubt there are leadership implications in his mind having done this, but I, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt because he was so adamant while in government that these trade-offs should be looked at. He started getting calls in the media, some pretty awful names, almost suggestions like he was a friend of COVID because he would dare talk about the other impacts of lockdown. So I think he took a risk then. And I think to some extent he's taking a risk now going on the record with Fraser because I think what he's really trying to say is something's going to happen again. We don't know if it'll be another pandemic. We don't know what the threat will be. Something's going to happen again, and there are going to be calls again to lockdown. We have this new lever we can pull. It's called lockdown. People are going to want to use it, and we must next time ask the questions we didn't ask this time because kids, non-COVID patients, um, you know, people who suffer from loneliness, the elderly, so many people are going to have knock-on effects from this for years to come. They weren't considered for the better part of two years. We're only thinking about them now. And for many people, tragically, it's going to be too late. I guess this fundamental point to me was that people have got the right to know what went on. All of us, where millions of people had their lives turned upside down by lockdown. 
assuming the government somewhere was thinking, okay, on the balance of interest, this is right. That decision, that calculation was never made. That is a scandal. And that's what I think Rishi Sunak has blown the whistle on. Thank you, Fraser, Katie and Kate. Next, for this week's issue, Aidan Hartley looks at the stark contrast between how the East and the West offer aid to Africa. Aidan joins me now, along with Degan Ali, founder and principal of DA Global. Aidan and Degan, thank you very much for joining the edition this week. Aidan, in the magazine, you write about the difference between aid provision to Africa from the East and the West, respectively. Could you bring listeners up to speed? How are the West and the East competing for attention in Africa? Well, really, I'm talking about the diplomatic engagement with Africa by the leaders of both the West and the East. Obviously, the war in Ukraine has provided a a moment of competition between uh, Russia, particularly, and Western countries like the US and, and France and the UK. And then, obviously, in the background is the influence of China, which has been extremely significant in the African continent. And what I say is that Africa has been diplomatically unimportant for the West in particular and and Russia. China has been building in Africa, has been uh, mining in Africa for for years now, but it's sort of dropped off the map for the West. And, And suddenly, the continent, after decades, really since the Cold War, has become a place where there are competing efforts to engage with the African leadership. And, and it's an interesting moment because it provides an opportunity particularly for African leaders and African economies to try to not play a zero-sum game, but to, to try to gain advantage, obviously, from this, this competition between East and West. And... And I mean, obviously, the West has been beating the drum of human rights and democratization and anti-corruption and uh, uh, a peaceful resolution of conflicts, etc., for decades. But but in that process, it appears that the West has has slightly lost the plot because they have forgotten that uh, Africa's population, which is cantering way above 1.2 billion people now, is a continent full of people who want to gain wealth. They want to prosper. And that's how they've been engaging with China. You know, that's how they would like to see the West approach the continent much more than it does. Whereas the, the West has an obsession with aid. And, and I think that, you know, underlying the argument in the article, there is this, uh, this feeling across the continent that the West would be much better if it was trying to engage with the continent or on a business and enterprise front, trade rather than aid. Degan, I think I'm right in saying that you're dialing in from Somalia, where Samantha Power, head of the US's $60 billion a year US aid project, recently announced a huge aid package for the country. What did you make of that announcement? And, and do you think it's what Somalia needs from the West? Yeah, I mean... I am um, very cynical about aid, having done this now for 20 plus years and witnessing my own country being a recipient of trillions of dollars or billions of dollars, actually, over the past 20 years. And 
I'm not seeing much real improvement on the ground. And this is what actually propelled me to start questioning this whole entire paradigm and start calling for decolonization. Because I don't think the 60, whatever the package was from Samantha Power, if you quadruple that, from all the OECD donors, which includes um, almost all the European countries, is going to have, we're not going to see infrastructure. We're not going to see roads. We're not going to see ports. We're not going to see support to help uh, businesses thrive. We're not going to see things to allow Somalis to start now, finally, after 30 plus years of war, to start trading their uh, products like bananas and other things that they used to export to the to the West, to Europe, we're not going to see all of that uh, from all of these aid packages. We're just going to see the same old thing where a bunch of NGOs and UN agencies make huge amounts of funding. Um, they continue with their massive, very expensive, expatriate-driven infrastructure with staff that are well-paid uh, vehicles and their nice houses in uh, the suburbs of Nairobi, but we're not going to see any real change for the average person in Somalia. And that's my biggest source of frustration. So I'm very much in agreement with Aiden that the West has, has lost uh, the, a real major opportunity and they are very angry with China, but they've created the situation that exists now where a lot of these African countries are responding to China and not just China in the, in the case of the Somalia, Turkey has become a huge player. Turkey has developed more infrastructure in two years in the capital than the entire aid system did for 20 years. Um, they built roads. Somalis can see tangible things that have improved their lives that they couldn't see from the, from the international uh, Western aid system. They built an airport. They built all of these things that Somalis are benefiting from. Trade is, is benefiting from. Markets are benefiting from. Private sector is betting, benefiting from that create jobs. So yeah, I think the problems that they have with China being in Africa and a new power is a problem that they created themselves. They had this opportunity. They've, they've had a an open field to do what they want, and they've just failed. Dagan, I, I, I'm sure that, that uh, we agree and disagree on a few other things, but I think that that's absolutely right. I think that the, the theme of my article is really that uh, the West not only has neglected the great opportunity that the African continent presents, this massive market, this incredibly young and dynamic population that wants to move. It has completely misconceived its, its strategy in Africa by defining it by aid, rather than what I think that we both perceive Africans want, which is to create jobs and to create wealth and to prosper just like anybody else in the world. And although China, and to a lesser extent now Moscow, is engaging with Africa quite often with dictatorial leaders who are abusing their, their voters uh, and their countries. The, the, the fact is that those countries, particularly Beijing, has been canny enough to give Africans what they want. And I think that the message is that Africans feel that they can do a lot of this work towards you know, strengthening the rule of law and building civil society and, 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 and working out their problems of poverty 
by creating wealth if, if they're given the basic infrastructure that Beijing is providing them. And, and also, they want these countries to come in and do business because uh, the Chinese, the Turks, etc., are able to do business. They can drill oil wells, they can sink copper mines. And, and of course, they do this at a, at a cost of business. They are aware and pragmatic about the, want, the things that they have to do in Africa um, that the West is just not prepared to do. The West feels not only that Africa is a dangerous basket case, but also they feel that any businesses that venture into the continent must be straying into the realms of corruption, because otherwise, why would they end up in weak states like the Democratic Republic of Congo? And so there are very few incentives for investors from the West to engage in the continent. And, and what's happening is this sort of bizarre and distressing trend where the, the Western world just can't engage with Africa because they feel guilty about the colonial past. And I'm sure, Degan, you feel that they should feel guilty about the colonial past. But that hamstrings their ability to engage with the continent of today. And, you know, they feel so worried that they're going to offend anybody that they just can't come in and give Africa what it wants, which is economic growth. And the point about my article, the way that it ends, is that by 2050, a quarter of all human beings on Earth are going to be Africans. And presumably that won't include the Africans who've already migrated to support um, ageing societies in Europe and elsewhere in the West. You know, at, at, at the moment, there is a, a median age which is below 19, and that provides an enormous economic opportunity. And, you know... If you don't take notice of Africa, right, in a, in a positive way, then you're going to be sidelined because economic growth is going to happen in Africa. It's not the next stage, it's going to be something completely different. But whatever it is, and it's going to be a rocky ride, I think that Africa is also feeling that it's turning a corner and they're going to do business with whomever is willing to come into the continent. And you mentioned Turkey. It's Brazil, it's South Korea, it's India, it's the East, but it doesn't seem to be the West. And that is going to be a big problem for the West, because Africa is going to become ever more assertive diplomatically and economically as time goes on. And Dagan, do you think lots of African countries would be open to the idea of doing more business with the West, or has the damage been done? And as Aidan says, the kind of past colonial history is just something that's just too hard to sort of overcome? Yeah, um, I, I don't think the relationship is as benign as uh, them feeling guilty and don't know how to deal with the history of colonialism. I think it's much more insidious than that. I think that there is a purposeful, by design, plan on the part of the West to keep Africa in this position because it is a source of uh, raw material. It's where they can extract raw materials really cheap and then take it to Europe or the US and then sell these products at a much higher price. And so I think that <laughs> I would love to say that it was a very unfortunate and um, unintentional process that led uh, the West to treat Africa this way since independence. Um, and 
I mean, just I'll give you a very basic example. You know, all these West African countries that are producers, uh, the highest number of uh, amounts of cocoa comes from these uh, West African countries. But when was the last time that you bought a Ghanaian high quality chocolate in Europe? Never. Why? Because they export the cocoa to Europe. They take it, reproduce it as theirs, and now, you know, Swiss chocolate and uh, French chocolate, which all comes from the cocoa of, of these countries. So it's it's by design. It's it's not by accident. And um, the former 14, 15 countries that were former colonies of France, what they have to endure up to this day, the fact that they still have to deposit all their hard currency in the French central bank, that they still have these, the, these conditions that they had to agree to, these archaic, really colonial just conditions that they had to agree with in order to gain their rightful their right for self-determination and independence and sovereignty. They don't have real sovereignty over their economic and financial systems. When your entire currency is controlled by France, what independence do you really have over your own uh, future? You really don't. So the, we still have these really strong strings of colonialism that the West has perpetuated. And so I think that the presidents and the leaders of Africa have had enough. And they, like Aiden said, they recognize that they, they need a different relationship and a different partnership. And whoever is willing to offer that is who they're going to start uh, having a relationship with, whether it's Brazil, whether it's Turkey, whether it's China, whoever. If the West wants to change and have a completely different compact with Africa, then I think that the, 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 these governments would be open, but they are not open. And the leadership of the Western leadership still sees Africa in this very subservient role and being a source of raw materials and not once and does not want it to develop, does not want it to become a strong powerhouse that, that it has the potential to be. I, I agree with some of what you say, but obviously China is, is the main extractor of, uh, of uh, for example, metals from Africa uh, and, and many other commodities besides. And so your argument should really apply to uh, Beijing more than the West. But I think that another point is that, for example, I quote the Kenyan ambassador to the United Nations who said recently that if the USA wanted to engage with Africa more, it could have so much more influence. It could, in his words, take it all. Because I think that the voters of Africa, the ordinary Africans, feel that they would like to be ruled better, that they're badly ruled by terrible leaders, many of whom have been in power for decades. These are the people who are engaging with Beijing and Moscow. They would like to engage with um, the countries that uh, also talk about um, human rights and, and civil rights and democratization, but they need the economic package. And so, you know, in order for that package of uh, human rights and so on to be uh, progressed, they need the economic package. They're dealing with Beijing and Moscow because they don't have anybody else that is better to provide this stuff for them. And, you know, you only have to look at a road that could be built by Japan or uh, an Ita Italian civil engineering firm or the USA 
compared to infrastructure that's built by China, of course Africans would rather have a better piece of engineering or a, a bridge or, or a business that, that holds uh, standards like uh, fair pay and safety and promotion of women, etc., such as British companies try to do in Africa. But the fact is the West doesn't seem to want to have that complex and rich relationship with the continent. And, and for too long, they've been too obsessed with aid. So at a time like this, during the Ukraine war, when it seems that Africa can assert itself a great deal more powerfully, the West is losing out to the East and therefore is going to lose out long-term economically and diplomatically. Thank you, Aidan and Degan. And finally, Rachel Johnson this week raises concerns about her Hansi yoga teachers. She joins me now, along with Sasha Brown-Warsham, who's a yoga teacher and the author of Namaste the Hard Way. Rachel, in this week's issue, you write about some rather alarming comments that your yoga teacher made to you. Can you enlighten our listeners as to what exactly happened in the class? Most of the time, yoga is you know, incredibly healing, therapeutic, incredibly good for you, whatever sport you play. You know, Ryan Giggs said it extended his playing career by probably 10 years when he started doing yoga, or as he preferred to call it, stretching. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so I was in this class, and it was a sort of mid-morning class, and the instructor, who was a, a guy in shorts, suddenly said, told us all oh, we were kneeling, like in a forward, it's called um, Uttana Shiva, I can't remember what it's called, anyway. We've got a yoga instructor who'll tell us. Anyway, he suddenly said, flower your anus to the sky. And I was like, right. I mean, I've I've been through quite a lot in yoga classes before. In a French yoga class, they said, uh, mettez-vous dans la position où vous vous offrir, which basically means get into doggy style. <laughs> I, I kid you not. I kid you not, which is another kneeling position. And then I just find a lot of the happy baby and kind of they're kind of there's something a bit infantilizing and a bit sexualizing about it that doesn't sit well with me. Sasha you are yourself a yoga instructor do you do you agree with Rachel that there is a sort of slight sexualized element to yoga? I do especially when you look at it um, for you know from Instagram if you look at Instagram influencers uh, etc I do think that there does tend to be a lot of like nude yoga or you know different kinds of like bikini yoga you know just things that are obviously meant to get men to look at women doing um, sexualized poses. So I think in some cases it's sexualized. I think that if you are ever uncomfortable during a class, that certainly that is not the right class for you. That is not the right instructor for you. But I think in the purest sense, if you have the best instructor uh, that you feel very comfortable with, it, it certainly shouldn't be. It should be something that you, sh- you should feel very present in your body. And I feel like anytime it's sexualized, you're getting pulled out of that, which is an unfortunate thing that I think poorer instructors do, to be honest. You looked a bit shocked there, Rachel. Had you, had you heard of nude yoga? I had. I've read a. I read a piece about nude yoga in the Guardian. Was that not? That wasn't written by you, I don't think, was it, Sasha? I didn't write that, but um, you did read it. Heard about it? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a, it's the sexualized language. I don't feel there's any sexual intent often in the in the yoga classes, but I think that in order 
for everybody to feel free and open. Sometimes the idiom becomes a bit let your freak flag fly kind of thing as if we're all we're all on this page and you know I'm a very open I don't have any inhibitions at all but something about the use sometimes they use very technical detailed terms to to refer to especially the uh, below belt areas the nether regions it's all you know there's a lot of perineum there's a lot of anus there's a lot of pelvic floor and you just feel it's all getting quite gynecological Sasha, as Rachel points out in her piece, there is a sort of darker side to this. And there have been recent stories about yoga instructors who've been accused of abusing some of the people they've been teaching. Is that something that you've you've heard of? And, and is that something that people should be aware of when they when they go to a yoga class? Uh, yes. I mean, it's, it certainly is an issue, I think, with male to female instructors frequently. Um, I, I know that I've had instructors in the past who who I've later realized were being sexual. And I think in the, in the context of a yoga class, sometimes you kind of laugh or you let it slide because you're like, oh, everybody's just free right now. And then you leave and, you're, and you think to yourself, well, I actually felt really uncomfortable with that adjustment. Um, I had a particular instructor who would, every single time I went in his class, he would, while I was in downward dog, he would come up behind me and press his entire pelvis against me and then rub the front of my thighs. And you would think, well, that is obviously a sexual adjustment, <laughs> but it took me maybe three or four classes before I realized that because I do think that you are in a context in which you're supposed to be free with your body. You're supposed to let go of some inhibitions. You're supposed to feel kind of good about yourself and and you get into this mindset where everybody's there to heal each other and help each other. Yeah. And it doesn't, at least for me, it didn't occur to me for a long time that, oh, actually, I think he's doing this on purpose because he's targeting me and he does the same adjustment every single time I'm there. And, it, and every time it gets a little bit deeper and a little bit more intense so yeah <laughs> definitely what Sasha says reminds me this wasn't actually yoga but I did go and see a practitioner who called himself the wizard and we were on his, our own in his studio and at the end of the session he sort of get got cushions out he was a sort of healer type person he got cushions out and he made me lie down on the cushions and then he lay on top of me and I was, but by that stage, the room was so hot and I was so exhausted because he, he lived out of London that I sort of went through with it thinking this will make a great story. <laughs> anyway, when I told my friends I'd been to see him, they said, did he lie on top of you at the end? And I went, yep. And it was like his party piece. But I mean, how do people get, that was before the Me Too of yo, Me Tooing of yoga, which has happened um, over the past few years. So that was a bit before that. Rachel, to counter all this, you, you speak to your friend Daisy War, and she's recently qualified as a yoga instructor. And she tells you that all industries have sex pests. She says journalism, for instance, you know, that, that that's just normal. And, and do, you, do you take that point? Do you think that it's just. Yes, but in not all industries do you get yourself in kind of um, positions where you are basically presenting your genitals to a, <laughs> a, a large group of people in a you know exposed, very exposed way in some cases if you're doing naked yoga and you don't have the other person coming up and, and doing these adjustments and whatever, whatever else they're called. Yeah, Daisy was furious when I rang her to, for a comment because... She believes that yoga is probably the solution to every problem and the meaning of life. 
So she doesn't like any suggestion that yoga is any worse or any better than any other practice or profession. And Sasha, Rachel concludes her piece by saying that she's decided to go online and obviously lots of people during the pandemic started doing yoga classes online. Do you think people are sort of enjoying that aspect of it where they have a bit more, bit more distance from, them, from their instructors or do you think people miss that? I think that they're... In, in its best form, yoga is an amazing connection between people. I think that there is a vulnerability that you have when you're all sharing a space. So I, I certainly still prefer in-person like yoga. Like sex. Um, but I, but, you know, I, I also, I think adjustments need to be something that are done with consent. And, um, you know I, know, I know that a lot of studios around me now actually have cards that you can if you want to be adjusted, if you want to be touched, you can turn it over on one side. And if you don't want to be, you can turn it on the other and you just put that in front of your mat. And that makes it clear to the instructor whether or not you want to be touched. And I like that because I do think like as a as an instructor, it can be very scary because you can um, touch someone who doesn't want to be touched and you can feel that in the in the feedback that they give you. Um, but you've kind of already done that <laughs> and then it's too late. So I think it creates an interesting uh, dynamic where you can actually say, I want to be touched. I want to be, I want to participate in this physical experience between two people, or I want to just keep it on my mat and be alone. And so that to me is the best when you are offering that consent, but you're still in person because I do think there's something that you lose when it's all online. Well, I actually, I agree with Sasha. I mean, if I had uh... If I was more committed to my practice, I would probably go back to a hot yoga studio. Thank you, Rachel and Sasha. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can pick up the magazine to read everything we've discussed. I'm Lara Prendergast, and I do hope you'll join us again next week. 